Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today we'll be reading Matthew 26, 14 through 16. That's on page 485 of the Blue Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible or you need one, feel free to take one. They're our gift to you. That is Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver, and from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Thus says God's word. Thank you, Danae. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Um, Lord, we pray that we would not avoid the examination that your word, uh, that you use your word to do in us, Lord God. We pray, as we've said so often, that we wouldn't just be readers of your word, but we would allow your word to read us, Lord. And so, Lord, as we tackle this tough subject matter today, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten it, that you would imply, apply it to us, that you would help us to see um, why this the story of this man matters to us. And God, we, we just trust you to do that. Lord, I am standing before this people in all kinds of weakness, Lord. And so, Lord, I ask for your strength to be able to communicate in a way that is pleasing to you, in a way that is, is faithful to you. And... Um, Lord, fully acknowledging uh, that I cannot do this without you. And so, Lord, I I just thank you in advance for the way you're going to be with me over these next several minutes. And, Lord, we thank you for uh, just gathering us all here together, calling us to attention to hear your word in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So we've been doing a series on the Gospel of Mark, and we, we've decided to take just a brief pause as we prepare for uh, Resurrection Sunday, April 17th, um, where we celebrate the resurrection. And what we've decided to do is to examine different characters from the story of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And um, this is the probably the toughest story to look at because it's the story of Judas Iscariot. When you come to the story of Judas, when you come to this this series of of stories and people that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks, you realize very quickly that there is absolutely no atrocity that reveals the sinfulness of the human heart more deeply than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. All of us, even those of us that are born some 2,000 years later after that event share in the guilt of his execution. See, he wasn't put to death, as many of you know this, he wasn't put to death for any crimes of his own, but he was crucified as a punishment for the sins of those he intended to save, those he would save. But on top of that, in his day, more than just that general reality about who shares the guilt of the death of Jesus Christ, more directly in his day, he was sinned against by bloodthirsty men who would not be satisfied until at least they thought they had disposed of him by the means of the cross. 
Pastor John Piper once undertook to ask this, to answer this question rather, what sin in the murder of Jesus was the most spectacular, the most significant, the most horrifying? You can put any adjective in there you want. And he gives several possible options. He includes the driving of the nails. He includes the thrusting of the spear into his side. He includes the expediency of Pilate to just try to deal with a problem and be done with it. He, he, he adds the mockery of King Herod who robed him in purple and made sport at his suffering. The weaving of the thorns and the pushing them down with cruel gladness onto his sacred head. Peter's denial and the abandonment of all of the the disciples that he had hand-chosen. But Piper concludes, if you forced me to choose one of those, it would have to be Judas as the most spectacular sin in the murder of Jesus, because of the combination of evils, he says, in the heart of Judas. Now, within that combination of evils, he lists the fact that the Bible tells us clearly that Judas was a thief. He was a covetous man. And for a bribe, for for a simple bribe, he was willing to betray not only a close personal friend... But the Messiah, the holy Son of God, one who in his very presence had proved that claim over and over and over and over again. His heart was so brazen that though he could have selected any method, the method he selected to betray this man was, uh, the sign rather, was a kiss. Now this is... This is important in their culture. A a kiss is a, a greeting that is reserved for two people that have immense trust between them. But for Judas, this kiss was nothing more than a sign to point Jesus out to those who were tasked with arresting him and bringing him before the Jewish courts. There's no doubt The Judas is the most notorious person in all of scriptures. Jesus, in fact, himself, in praying his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, calls him the son of perdition. Now, we don't use that word perdition a lot anymore. In fact, in the ESV Bible, which we use around here, it says son of destruction. And perdition is a word that's associated with hell or uh, or with eternal destruction, eternal damnation. In, in archaic usage, it referred to utter, complete destruction, the, the end of something, the, the, the disastrous end of something. And this is who Jesus says he was. He's the son of perdition. The idea that's being communicated here is that because of his wickedness, this wickedness that was resident in Judas, Judas was literally a son of hell, or if you prefer, a product of hell. He was something that that was hell's best thinking on display. In the language of the Old Testament, over and over again, he was one that was devoted to destruction. 
when Christ predicted his betrayal to the other disciples, he made this perfectly clear. This is what he said in Matthew 26, 24. He said, the son of man, speaking of himself, goes at it as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, woe, another word we don't use a lot, woe is this pronouncement of despairing condemnation that's given to those who are absolutely beyond remedy. You see it over and over in the prophecies of God's judgment in the Old Testament. But here he's saying that, that, that time is up, there's no, more, there's no more chance of remedy for Judas. Woe to that man. When we consider the depth of the wickedness in Judas... It's only natural that we should ask ourselves, and I don't know if this thought has ever occurred to you, but we should ask ourselves, if this is who he was, why on earth did Jesus choose him? Perhaps we could ask ourselves, did Jesus simply misjudge him? How many of us have had friends that we've chosen who turned out to be betrayers or turned out to throw us under the bus in some way or another? Maybe that's what happened to Jesus. Maybe if he had known what he would later do, he never would have picked him in the first place. Perhaps Judas Iscariot just changed and maybe at one time he wasn't that bad at all. Perhaps if Jesus knew what Judas would do, that he picked him in hopes that he would later somehow repent. So let's think about those options and let's examine them all one by one and see if we can gain more clarity about what the Bible teaches and also what we can learn from Judas. The first thing that we have to establish, we have to establish this beyond any doubt, is that Jesus chose Judas. You can't work your way around that by looking at the, the uh, accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He chose him. Judas did not volunteer for service. Je- Judas did not apply with Jesus to be a disciple or apostle. Jesus chose him. In the list of the 12 disciples that we have in Matthew 10, Mark 3, and Luke 6, Judas is listed in each and every account. Matthew and Mark both call him Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, or Jesus. And Luke calls him Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Regardless of this, both Matthew and Luke say Jesus personally called these disciples. Luke adds that he chose them, and more than any of the other two, uh, Mark expressly makes this point. Look how Mark puts it in Mark 3. He says, and he went up on the mountain, and watch this, he called to himself those whom he desired, those who he wanted, and they came to him. And in the list of those people he called, guess who's there? Judas Iscariot. So we've established, I hope, with those references, that Jesus willingly chose Judas. So let's explore the question of whether Jesus was unaware or misled or even deceived about Jesus uh, about Judas's eventual betrayal. When he chose Judas, did he know that he would betray him? Well, 
Let's look at the scriptures. In John chapter 6, Jesus drops a bombshell on the crowd that was following him at that time. If you're familiar with the story, it was the day after he had miraculously fed more than 5,000 people with just five loaves, two fishes. And they came looking, this, this crowd of people that he had fed walked all the way around the lake to get another free meal from Jesus. But Jesus said, if I give you another free free meal, in effect, he said, if I give you another free meal, it's only going to leave you empty and wanting more. And he told them what they really needed. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, as you can imagine, if you heard this, minus the context of the entire New Testament, you too would have been shocked. The idea of cannibalism in the, in the, in the Jewish culture was horrific, just like it is in our culture. And this was too much for the people. They could not handle this word. They even said there that it's a hard saying. And their hearts were hard and they couldn't understand Jesus' words. And so at that moment, the whole crowd stopped following Jesus. They just dispersed and went their way. And after they leave, Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks them, Hey, what about you guys? You want to leave too? But Peter responds like this. He says, Lord. I mean, I'm sure he didn't. He didn't get that statement any more than the other guys there, but he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we've believed, and we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And you would think Jesus would have said, good, glad to hear it, and marched on. But Jesus' response to Peter's statement of that is chilling. It's 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 in the, uh, a shiver up your spine. This is what he says. Jesus answered to them, John 6, 70, Did I not choose you? the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. And John, just so we won't miss what Jesus is saying there, says he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So, What does that tell us? Well, Jesus absolutely knew what was in the heart. He absolutely knew what was in the destiny of Judas. We also asked if perhaps Judas at one time wasn't that bad. Did he take a wrong moral turn somewhere at Albuquerque and, and, and only to, to, you know, at the end of his life or at the end of, of his time with Jesus? Well, once again, let's look at what the scriptures say. In John chapter 12, Jesus is at dinner in the home of Lazarus along with his sisters Mary and Martha and uh, in a beautiful act of worship, beautiful act of worship, Mary takes a jar of perfume worth almost a year's wages and pours it on the feet of Christ. And she kneels down and she wipes his perfumed feet with her hair. And as this beautiful scent billows and fills the entire house where they are, guess who raises a protest? Judas. Judas speaks up here. He's not known in accounts of the disciples for being a a talker, but man, right here, he had something to say. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 
And it's in that statement that we see this root of corruption in Judas's heart. See, how do we see that? Because he thought that the perfume was worth more than the one upon whom it had been sacrificed. He wanted to look impressive. He wanted to look charitable. He wanted to look noble religiously in front of his buddies. But John, once again, exposes the true motivation of Judas's heart. For those of us who weren't there and get to read this account 2,000 years later, he says, he tells us right after Judas' statement, he says he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, think about this really hard. The fact was that before Judas betrayed Christ, he was an embezzler. He was a thief. And when you think about that, just logically ask yourself, why would he not betray someone from whom he was willing to steal? It's interesting that the price agreed to with Judas by the chief priest was the price from the book of Exodus of a slave. See, Judas thought Jesus was only, only had the value of a slave for his greed and his covetousness instead of repenting of that greed and covetousness and leaving everything behind as the other disciples had done to follow Christ as Lord. So can we pause just for a moment in the message and make just a tiny point of application here? There are many that we know, many among us, many that we've, we've interacted with who are so, so willing to rob God. They rob God of their time. They will not put themselves out in any way to give just their time to the Lord. They rob God of their talents. They, they use the skills and the talents God gave them to build wealth or reputation, but they never give it in the service of the King. They rob God of their money. They, they will buy all kinds of expensive toys and, and comforts for themselves, but never think to give anything for the work of God's kingdom. And most of all, all of those things are emblematic of the way they rob God of their lives. See, the gospel is not a simple matter of of just check off a, a religious list of something that you have believed mentally. But the gospel says that anyone who comes after Jesus may, must take up their cross and follow him, meaning that, the, that, that your life is at stake. You've got to lay down your entire life to follow Christ biblically, and according to the gospel. And so, if people are so willing in so many areas to rob God, how can those same people ever foolishly believe that they're going to be faithful to Him when the chips are down and the fires of martyrdom are burning hot? They'll be the first to turn and betray their Lord. Lastly, to the question of Judas's hope, or I'm sorry, of Jesus' hope for Judas' repentance. 
If that were even a possibility, Jesus would not have called Judas the son of destruction if hell had not been his destiny. Remember that on the cross, remember this, that Jesus prayed for the people that put him there. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And this implied on their part some level of ignorance in their actions. When the Apostle Paul is giving his testimony in the New Testament, he says that um, that he persecuted the church of God, but he acted ignorantly. And truly, as I just said, we're all guilty of the crime of putting Christ on the cross. But watch the difference in response that Judas gets. In the moment before Judas flees to go connect with the chief priests and the the soldiers to arrest him, Jesus says directly to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus saw Judas's act as his predetermined course. In predicting it, he said it would have been better for him if he had never been born. So we return to our original question. If everything established that we've established here is true, why did Jesus choose Judas? Again, I'm really grateful to Pastor John Piper who gave five excellent responses to this question and I thought I'd like to share them with you. The first reason that Jesus chose Judas is so that the scripture would not be broken. When Jesus predicted Judas's vile act, he points, in speaking to his disciples, to Psalm 41.9. This is what it says in, in where, he, where he quotes that. In John 13.18, he says, I am not speaking of all of you, the other 11 disciples, but I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. But there are many other verses throughout the Old Testament that point to Judas' act of betrayal as well. There's verses in Exodus and Psalms and Jeremiah and Zechariah. And they accurately predict some aspect, one aspect or another of his story, just to name a few references. There's a lot of them in the Old Testament, but that's just to name a few. Jesus' reference to these scriptures proves that everything, don't ever miss this fact, Everything was happening to Jesus according to a divine plan. The Christ himself was in charge of the events that were seemed to be working against Christ. What comfort does that give you in your own trials? In your own tribu- tribulations that the Christ is in charge. Jesus was not a hapless victim of other men's wickedness. Jesus was was in charge. He was in control. Secondly, so that's the first thing. Scripture wouldn't be broken. Secondly, Piper says that Jesus uh, chose Judas Iscariot to remind us that even the most spectacular sins can serve God's redemptive purposes. Life is not a chess game where we can be so smart that we can eventually get God into a checkmate. Amen? No one is putting God in the checkmate. The eternal, holy God. It's an absurd thought. But on the contrary, Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed by the kiss of a close friend to prove that he works out his plan of redemption no matter what stands against him. 
early Christians prayed this prayer. I love this. So they'd been persecuted. They'd been in, in, uh, in trouble uh, with the religious authorities. And they're praying to God and they say this, for truly in this city, Jerusalem is what they're speaking of, truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So what they're saying is, God, just not too long ago, right here in Jerusalem, everybody was against Jesus. The, the king of, of Rome, the king of Israel, all the Gentiles, all the Jews, everybody was against you. And then he says this. He didn't say to do whatever they wanted to make you their victim. It says this. This is the amazing part. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand, God, and your plan had predestined to take place. Folks, God is in control. He is not, you are, you're not just a, 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 a victim tossed on the, on the waves of the sea. If you belong to Christ, no matter what you see around you, no matter what the circumstances are saying, He is in control. Those who think their sins are going to gain an upper hand for them in some way or another will always find in the end that even their most foul acts of rebellion only have served to bring glory to God in one of two ways, generally speaking. They bring glory to God when God in His mercy grants repentance from those foul, rebellious ways. How many of you here have been granted forgiveness from your foul, rebellious ways? Raise your hand. But he also, this is the thing we don't talk about in church enough. God also receives glory when his name, his great holy name is vindicated. When his judgments are poured out in his holy wrath on those who deserve it. Job put it like this. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of God's can be thwarted by sinful men. No purpose of God's can be thwarted by the devil himself. God always wins. He is always glorified. The Bible says in Psalms 2, He sits in heaven and laughs at the plans of foolish people and nations and He holds them in derision. Third, this is the one that speaks to us on so many levels. Jesus chose Judas to prove that saving faith isn't the same thing as religious activity. Think about this. Luke says that Jesus chose his 12 disciples and he gave them the name apostles or sent ones. You know what that means? It means Judas had a pretty nifty religious title. It's like people who are called pastor and elder. Some of you saw the news this week. One of the most heralded pastors in the world this week went down in flames. Had a great religious title and he's gone. That's what Judas was. He had this great religious title and it meant nothing. Worse than that, Matthew 10 uh, verses 1-4 through four says that after selecting these 12 men, the Bible says Jesus gave them power, or gave them authority rather, over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. So not only did Judas have a spiritual title, Judas had spiritual power. Now some of you are cringing when I say that. You may think that surely Judas, because of his unrighteousness, didn't participate in these activities. 
that, 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 that these activities are usually associated with an apostolic ministry, but there is nowhere in the text of the Gospels or elsewhere that we're told that Judas was excluded from the miraculous authority that Jesus gave them, which actually confirms something that Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about the day of judgment, and he says, on that day, pay careful attention to this, on that day, many, not just Judas, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I, Jesus says, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And it's just worth just quoting John Piper here. He says in this article, What a vivid lesson to learn that right doctrine. Think about what they said. Lord, Lord, we know who you are. We've got our doctrine right, Lord, Lord. And religious activity and miracle working. We've cast out demons. We've healed people. Those things prove nothing about saving faith and being born again. And that is the lesson of Judas. You may be sitting here this morning and you may think, I have a religious uh, pedigree. My parents, 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 parents were Christians and we've all been Christians since. You may have actually seen miracles happen that you've prayed for. And I'm looking you, I wish I could do it all at once, but I'm looking you dead in the eyes and I'm telling you that proves nothing. Don't put your hope in that. The words of Jesus to Nicodemus still ring true. You must be born again. Without the new birth, your title, your doctrine, your miracles are utterly meaningless. Jesus will never be interested in your resume. He will only be interested in your faith, your repentance, your obedience, and your submission to Him. Those who take any comfort in their religious accomplishments will find out on the last day, like Judas, that Jesus Christ never actually knew you. Fourth, Jesus chose Judas to serve as a vivid illustration that God's sovereignty, which we affirm in this church, never undermines human responsibility. Those two things go hand in hand. It's true that Judas never repented because repentance wasn't granted to him by the Father. But at the same time, as at the same time that the repentance wasn't granted to him by the Father, he was fully responsible and fully accountable for the crimes that he did. Judas acknowledged this fact when he, with his conscience stricken, cried out to the chief priests, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The scriptures that had been written of him from old and God's redemptive decree did not wipe the blood from his hand. He chose as a free moral agent to take the silver and to betray Jesus. People often stumble. It's one of the things as a pastor, I have more conversations about this topic, but people often stumble over the doctrine of predestination. They think that if we're destined for either salvation or condemnation from eternity, then God can't be treating us fairly. 
But if I may be so direct with you, who are you to accuse the Almighty of unfairness? Who are you? Both God's decree and your sinful choices work hand in hand. Human choice doesn't alter God's predetermined will. He won't lose anyone he intends to save, nor will he admit anyone he intends to condemn. But God is still a righteous judge who declares that he will, quote, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Not a single soul will ever be cast into hell against their will. On the day when their verdict is carried out, they will have proven over and over again by their unrighteous deeds that they had no interest in loving, obeying, or believing Jesus as either Savior or Lord. Lastly, Judas proves that satisfaction in money corrupts our very souls. The only time that we hear Judas speak up in scripture before he betrays Jesus is when Mary pours this expensive perfume on Jesus' feet and he calls that sacrifice a waste. But he was speaking with a hypocrite's tongue. He wanted it to be sold so that he could have access to the wealth that it represented. In reality, he had sold his soul to the devil for a few measly dollars and in so doing, he missed real treasure. Look at how many times in the Gospels Satan is mentioned in this transaction that Judas did. It says in Luke 22, 3, Then Satan entered Judas called Iscariot, who was the, of the number of the twelve. John 13, 2, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And then thirteen twenty seven, Satan entered into him. And all of this, all of this activity with the direct Prince of Darkness, why? For monetary gain. Was it worth it? There's a clear timeline visible in Scripture. A moment when we can see Judas cast his vote against Jesus. At supper that same night, when Mary poured out this perfume, Judas makes his self-righteous, but in reality, selfish statement. And Jesus for that statement, rebukes him. He tells him, leave her alone. She's done this for me. In his shame and exposure and greed, he immediately plots to betray Christ. Now, 30 pieces of silver, I don't know if you ever looked at this, but no matter how you, or depending on how you calculate it, is worth between 100 bucks and 3,000 bucks in today's dollars. There's a lot of different ways to calculate it. And that may seem like a wide range, hundred to three, $3,000. And this is the amount that Judas thought that Jesus was worth. hundred bucks, 3,000 bucks. That's the price he put on him. Mary's gift, however, that she poured out on Jesus' feet was worth closer to $30,000. And she lavished it on Jesus without a second thought. That's how much she valued Christ. Now, this is not about money. Everyone's gripping their wallets tighter, their purses closer. It's not about money. Listen to me, seriously. The point is not the amount. 
The motive, it's the motivation of the heart. See, Mary gave extravagantly because her love for Christ compelled her to do so. But Judas grasped for mere pennies because his greed and his coveting was his true master. He wasn't mastered by love for Christ like Mary. No, he was mastered by his greed. Again, it's what the heart does that Jesus is interested in. Once in the temple, he remarked how a widow had given two small copper coins to God. It was the last one she had. He compared her to those who were just giving out of their abundance with trumpets blaring and making a big show of it. They were drawing attention to themselves. And she was commended by Christ, while the loud, bragging, self-righteous, self-serving ones were not. Paul writes to us in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, Judas is the poster child for the truth of this verse. For greed, he wandered away and was broken. His soul was pierced beyond repair. So how does this story end? Well, it ends with remorse, but unfortunately not repentance. Judas took his own life. He hung himself, and then in the book of Acts, it tells us that that got a lot more graphic. He fell headlong, and the Bible says his insides burst out. It's a really graphic thing to talk about on Sunday morning, but he did not end pretty. Today, this very moment, while we speak, Judas Iscariot is, is alive. Not well, but alive. He's confined to conscious, eternal torment until the day he stands before the one, before the holy eyes of the one he betrayed to face his final, terrible judgment when he'll be cast into the lake of fire forever. As a preacher... Preaching to you about Judas is intimidating. Because my fear is that you will assume that there's no way to apply this, these lessons of his life to yourselves personally. That's what I said. You might even be offended by that thought. You could even be insulted as if I were to preach a message to you asking you to consider how your life might share similarities with Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden. If I had said that, most of you would have walked out. But don't rush. Don't immediately dismiss this consideration. If you were to meditate on your heart's condition, truthfully, honestly, would it reveal that you too are covetous, which the book of Colossians tells us is a form of idolatry? Are you pursuing wealth? or power, or reputation, and, and in so doing, even, with, even if your heart says, I belong to Jesus, does your heart find itself a willingness to betray Him, deny, denying His demands, so that you can have the things you lust after? See, but to truly give yourself to the gospel demands that Jesus gets everything that you have. Everything that you are, your whole being. To offer him less 
is to compromise the gospel and to remake God in your own image instead of uh, gladly being the imago Dei, the image of God reflecting His glory. Romans 12.1 Paul's wrapping up the book of Romans and he says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. In other words, I'm basing my appeal on the mercy that you have so richly received. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Jesus asks of you this morning is not your hand raised and your prayer prayed. He wants everything. He wants your life. So what is the value that you place upon Christ? Is it 30 pieces of silver? Is it every ounce of who you are, body, soul, and spirit? You cannot bargain with Jesus based on your perceived religious credentials. Jesus does not care about such thing. He wants you with nothing held back from him. He wants to own you, to form you, and to refine you. So please take heed. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Any attempt to redefine the demands of the gospel is to betray Christ with a kiss. You may have the appearance of friendship with him. I mean, heck, you're here, right? Surely you're, you're part of the group. You're part of the 12. You're here. You may have the appearance of friendship with him, but all you're really doing is selling him out. Take care. My brothers, my sisters, take care for your soul. Come to Jesus on his terms or do not pretend that you have come to him at all. Would you stand with me? Holy Spirit, I just ask that your searching eyes would find us out this morning. Let all of our sin be exposed. Let all of our greed be exposed. Let all of our covetous be exposed. Let all of our willingness to compromise the gospel be exposed. And Lord, stir in us all a heart of true repentance. A heart that does not cry out like Judas saying, I've sinned and betrayed innocent blood, but a heart that cries out like Thomas as he received grace and says, my Lord and my God. God, do it in us today. Help us, Lord. Help us, Jesus. God, don't let us be comfortable in our lofty estimations of ourselves. Lord, help us to be looking to you to give our lives meaning, to give our lives purpose, to give our lives context, Lord. We need you. We need you. We're going to sing this song, and as we do, I pray that you would just make it a a prayer of repentance, a prayer of rededication as as we... uh, prepare to renew the covenant again at the table of the Lord. Let's sing together. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast
Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now, if you would, just give thanks for the gift of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that takes our filthiness and makes it clean, that that takes our sins that are as scarlet and makes them white as snow. Lord, we pray that we would be conformed to your holy word, that we would be drawn closer and closer to the image of God in sanctification as as what these elements signify would have their work in us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd place your hands in a receiving position, I just want to pronounce this benediction over you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.